You can turn over to Matthew 5, and uh, we'll be having our communion time after the message today. Did you all have a good trip? Yes, good. Good to see you back. And uh, we have a little time of sharing later uh, before our communion time. So be praying if the uh, Lord wants you to share something. It could be a verse. It could be a prayer request. It could just be a blessing that God has blessed you in some way. And I uh, uh, want you to be able to share during that time. Uh, Matthew 5, I just want to go ahead and read the first couple verses here for us so we can get reoriented to what we've been talking about and what we've been learning the last couple weeks. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Uh, and seeing the multitudes, he went, Jesus, went up on a mountain, and he was seated with his disciples, and his disciples came to him. And he opened up his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, that's what we'll be looking at today, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Notice it says, for my name's sake. <laughs> Verse 12, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's bow in word of prayer as we, before we look at this text together. Father, we come together as the body of Christ this morning on this Communion Sunday. And Lord, we, we thank you that uh, Lord, we, we truly have a deep sense of need in our lives. Um, it doesn't take very much of a view um, at this verse to know that we ourselves can't qualify to be pure in heart. Uh, Lord, there's things in every one of our lives, probably even now, that are not pure. Um, there are things that are not right. Um, Lord, and yet you call us those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Um, and we know that this righteousness that we're hungering for and that we're thirsting for, um, it's not in ourselves. It's absolutely impossible for us to quench that thirst. Um, but it's a desire of us to be pure in heart. And yet it's so hard to do that <laughs> because we're here in the flesh and we deal with sin every day. And Lord, I just thank You that we're in a church where we have people that are willing to come and expose themselves to Your Word. We thank You that uh, we have the kind of folks that are willing to open the Word and confront their own sinfulness before a holy God. Lord, that, that takes humility. That takes someone who's willing to mourn over their sin. Lord, we're not here just to hear something fancy or tickle our ears. But Lord, we want to be dealt with by You and we come to the scrutiny of Your Word for that through Your Spirit. We thank You, Lord, that You're a God who deals with us graciously. And Father, we pray that what we're about to hear is not man's words. Lord, I pray that I may not speak in my own power, but I may speak in the power of the Spirit, that Your Word may be my Word, that I would just be a mouthpiece for You. Lord, I ask that You would do Your work in our hearts this morning through Your Word. And we thank You for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 
There's some things in the Bible that you can get a hold of. You can put your hands around them and you can tangibly uh, deal with them in our own mind. Um, it's not that difficult. Um, and then there are some things that are just far, far beyond us. There are some things in the Word of God that you look at and you go, how can this be? This just doesn't make logical sense. Um, this is one of those things that we're going to look at today. Um, it's one of those things that has a well that's kind of immeasurably deep. You can't really reach the depth of it. And, you know, it's important for us to kind of see that going into this because there's no way that I'm going to deal with this beatitude totally uh, extensively today, and that's not going to be my purpose. But when it, Jesus said there, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It would be kind of an insult to God just to say, okay, well, let's just deal with this real quick and we'll move on. We have to take some time with this. And this theme of purity in heart, this idea of being pure in heart or holy, you can also say that, uh, is traced throughout the Bible from the very beginning to the end. As one commentator says, he once heard a little boy, yeah, it's all through the Bible. It's, it's from, from the geniuses all the way to the revolution, <laughs> all the way through. And that's what we see here when we're talking about purity in heart. We're talking about a theme that is, is very necessary in our lives if we're going to see God. Um, and it draws from almost every biblical theme. You can't really... It's not a theme that's over here by itself. It's connected to everything else throughout the Word of God. And a lot of times when we looked at these Beatitudes in the past, we've stopped and we've asked questions as we've looked at each beatitude. And that's kind of what we want to do today. We want to stop and want to ask some questions. Now remember, all these are taken as a unit. You don't pick and choose. You don't wake up on Monday and say, well, today's my day to be merciful, but I'm not going to be very meek. <laughs> or tomorrow I'll be humble, but I'm, I'm not going to be pure in heart. It doesn't work that way. They're all together. And they're the characteristics and the attitudes of those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Those who are believers. Those who are Christ-like. So, a couple questions I want to ask about this beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. First one is, what is the historical context of this? What is the historical context when Jesus was actually saying these words? I kind of want to take us back in time where we're sitting on the hillside, in the Galilean hillside there, and Jesus is teaching us. And what would be in our minds if we were there in that culture, in that time, in that society at that time? Well, you have to understand that at the time of Christ's entrance into the world, Israel was in desperate condition. They were in desperate condition emotionally. They were in desperate condition economically, politically, spiritually, every way. They were just at their wit's end. Israel was. The Jewish people had anticipated this coming of the Messiah who would free them from the bondage of Rome and establish his kingdom on earth. And they were looking for a political system. They were looking for a political kingdom. Well, we all know that Jesus didn't come to establish a political kingdom, right? He came to establish a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of his people. Well, that begs the question, what was the spiritual condition of the Jewish people? If Jesus here isn't dealing with social economic problems in the Beatitudes, as some believe, he's not dealing with political or other things, he's dealing with spiritual issues, well, let's look at the spiritual condition of the Jewish people. 
Well, the Jewish people as a whole were dominated by a group called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees basically created this legalistic um, religiosity that they cloaked on everybody. And they, they just kind of made up things as they went. Because they looked at God's law and they realized that, you know what, there's nobody that could keep this. And so to help them kind of deal with the inability to keep God's law as He gave it, and by the way, God did not give us His law so that we would keep it, so that if we kept the law, we could go to heaven. That's not the purpose of the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law, the law of Moses, the Mosaic law was given to us for what purpose? To show us what? Our sinfulness. To show us our inability to save ourselves. That's why it was given. It was never meant to be kept. It was only meant to be a mirror in which we looked at and go, Yuck! <laughs> I'm a mess! I better reach out to, for, for God, to God for grace. That's what the Old Testament law was about. Well, the Pharisees didn't look at it that way. They looked at how are we going to keep all these things. And then they got frustrated because they couldn't keep them all, so they invented their own laws. They said, well, we know the law says that, but surely God doesn't expect us to keep that. So let's just invent our own laws. And they invented laws for hand washing. They invented laws for all sorts of things. And then they realized that, you know what, it's kind of difficult even to keep these laws that we invented. It's legalism. And it was so hard for them to keep that, finally they ended up boiling everything down to, you know what, if you just keep one of the laws, God will probably just look over the rest and it's no big deal. That's why the lawyer in Mark 12 asked Jesus, Hey, Jesus, what's the one commandment? What's the first commandment that we're supposed to keep in order to get into heaven? What's the most important commandment of all? He didn't say which ones. He said, what's the one? Because that was the mentality of the day. This religious system that they created produced, as most religious systems do, by the way, produced tremendous amount of guilt, a burden on people that they couldn't bear, They were frustrated. We could probably go around the room and, and some of us probably were raised in churches that were, were, were just put a burden of guilt on us and we got frustrated. Because you can never please them. You can never do enough. And it was always you had to do more. That's how it was back then. And it's funny because the religious people were committed to the reality of God. They weren't standing there saying, oh, we don't believe in God. They, they were committed to the reality of God. They were even committed to, to God's revealed Word through the law. And yet they looked at it and they said, we can't do this. And so in the end, the Pharisees' religious system, this, this legalistic mess that they created, basically didn't work. <laughs> it left everybody frustrated. So everybody was searching for something. Everybody wanted some kind of release from this burden that they carried around. And the guilt produced by this system that the Pharisees created even probably contributed to John the Baptist's ministry. Remember when we were going through Matthew earlier, we talked about John the Baptist and how he preached in the, multi in the wilderness and multitudes flocked to him? Why? Because they wanted something. They wanted to hear something. Fresh that would free them from the burden of guilt that they were carrying around. I mean, even the Pharisees and Sadducees went to him. 
The hearts of the people of Israel were aching for a sense of forgiveness, a sense of tranquility, a sense of peace in their life. See, they weren't crying for another rabbi to come and give them another law that they had to keep. That's not what they were crying for. They were looking for a Savior who would forgive them. And yet they missed it. That's the promise of a Savior. You know that. The Jewish people knew that God had promised a Redeemer. We read that in Isaiah 59 this morning. They knew someone would come and forgive their sins. They knew someone would find a remnant of true worshipers and cleanse them. They knew all that. Ezekiel even, even told them that, um, that God would sprinkle the redeemed with water and He would make them clean. That God was going to take out their stony heart and replace it with His heart of flesh. They knew all that. That He would purge them from their sin. They were aching for somebody to tell them how this was going to take place. Remember when the Pharisee came to Christ in John 3.1. A man of the Pharisees, it says, his name was Nicodemus. He was a leader, a ruler of the Jews. This is one of their rulers. And I think he was a pretty honest man because he came to Christ and he drew near to Christ because he saw what Christ's ministry was about. And he said, this has got to be, he's got to offer something to relieve this guilt I live with day in and day out. And he knew that he was in trouble if Jesus, what Jesus said was true. Because it was contrary to what his religious system was saying. He was probably one of the top men of the day, and yet he was frustrated, he was anxious. His religion didn't offer any answers to him. And it says in John 3, 2, he comes to Jesus at night, <laughs> notice that, and he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no man can do the miracles that you do, except God be with him. He wanted to find out what God had to say about what was troubling him. Isn't that a neat question to ask? When's the last time something was troubling you and you said, you know what, God, what do you have to say about what's troubling me? See, so many times we sit there and be anxious and our stomachs get upset and you know we worry about this, we worry about that. God has answers for us if we just go to Him. We go to His Word and we ask Him. He'll show us the answer. Just like He did here with this, this leader, religious leader of the day. He wanted to find out what God had to say about what was troubling Him. But you know what? He never got the chance to ask. <laughs> Jesus saw Him coming and Jesus read His heart and Jesus just spouted out to Him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was probably ready to say, how can I enter the kingdom of God? <laughs> you ever have somebody do that to you? You walk up to somebody and you start to talk and, and they answer your question before you even get the question. That's kind of weird. I know I've done that with people and they've done it with me. But this was a spiritual thing. And, and Jesus knew what was in Nicodemus' heart. He knew how empty it was. How void of life it was. And he said, this man needs what I have to offer. And he told him, you have to be born again. You have to be born from above. You have to be made new, Nicodemus. This old religious system's broke. It's not going to work. What you're doing is wrong. Try something new. But he was honest enough, I believe Nicodemus was, to at least admit his own sinfulness before God. 
How many of us here this morning are willing to admit our own sinfulness before a holy God? I pray that's the truth. So many times we like to think of ourselves as something more than what we are. You know, I go to church. I carry a Bible. I do devotions. I preach a sermon. Whatever it is. It doesn't make any difference. You have to come back to the fact that, you know what? You're a sinner saved by His grace. There's nothing good in yourself. Nothing. So even the religious leaders had that question. Then there was multitudes of people. John 6 tells us that, that Jesus miraculously fed about 25,000 people, including everybody. And they asked Him this question, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And our Lord answered this, This is the work of God that you believe on Him whom He has sent. See, those people really had the same question Nicodemus did. How do we do things God's way? I'm tired of trying to do it the Pharisaical way because it's not working. It's just producing guilt and heartache in my life. I want something fresh. Let's go to this guy named Jesus. He just fed all these people. He's got to have some answer. He said, believe on Him whom He has sent. They knew all about the religious rituals of the day, the ceremonies. They followed all the traditions. They did all that. But they wanted to know what's behind all this. They wanted to know how a person can get into the kingdom because they knew that they couldn't do it by keeping the law because they blew it so many times. So you had a Pharisee, you had the multitude of followers, you even had a lawyer. <laughs> In Luke 10.25, I don't know what your idea about lawyers is. Some people have favorable ideas about lawyers. Most people don't. But in 10.25 of the Gospel of Luke, it says a certain lawyer stood up and look at what he did. He tested Jesus, wanting to test Jesus. Lawyers seem to do that pretty well. And he said this, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You know what? Bottom line, that's the same question that Nicodemus asked. That's the same question the people in the multitudes in John 6 asked. They want to know, how do you get eternal life? Even the, the rich young ruler. In Luke 18, 18, a certain uh, ruler uh, asked Jesus, saying, Good Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So you, you see that there's people from all different levels of society, all different levels of the culture back then. And they all had the same question. <laughs> how do I get in the kingdom? How do I become a citizen of the kingdom? And it was interesting because Jesus came on the scene right about the time they were all asking that question. And guess what? He had the answer. What the dilemma is, is this. Here we have God who is holy. He's righteous. He's perfect in every way. There's no sin in God whatsoever. None. And yet He offers salvation to a sinful man. He offers a pass to a sinful man. Now you can sit there this morning and if you're honest, you can ask that question. How can a holy God, someone who knows no sin, offer salvation to someone who is basically, that's all they are, is sin? And that's what an honest and devout Jew would wonder as well. How can I enter God's kingdom? How can I do it? Because I can't keep these laws. That's what was going through their heads. And so Jesus answered those questions in the Beatitudes. He answered their questions. 
He'd gone through Galilee and he'd, he'd healed people, taught in the synagogues. He healed people of all sorts of diseases and, and, and did all such crazy things like that. And his fame spread and great crowds came to see him. But all, of all the people that came, they all had the same question. They wanted to know, how do we get in the kingdom? You see there in Matthew 5, verse 8, Christ's standard. He says, I'll answer your question real quick. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's the answer. What he meant there was only the pure in heart would see God in his kingdom. That's what he was telling him. See, not only though, not merely those who participate in the external ceremonies and religious ceremonies of the day. He didn't say that. He didn't say, blessed are those that perform all these, you know, ceremonies. They shall see God. He didn't say, blessed are those that go to church. They shall see God. Blessed are those that feed the hungry. They shall see God. He didn't say any of that. All those things are good things. But he didn't say that. He said, blessed are the pure in heart. See, if you're depending on a religion based on human achievement, I'm here to tell you, beloved, you will not make it into the kingdom. <laughs> There's no way. Only those who had their hearts purified by God will see Him. That's what Jesus was saying. What's our criteria when we want to when we want to kind of look at our own self? What do we do? We compare ourselves to who? We compare ourselves to others, don't we? We try to find somebody who's more sinful than we are, and we say, "Well, at least I'm not like that guy." <laughs> at least I try to maintain a job. At least I try to feed my family. I'm not like that guy. I mean, he's letting his family starve. I'm not like that guy over there. I mean, he he's you know, a rapist, or he's a child abuser, or he's this, or he's that. They did the same thing in Jesus' day. In 2 Corinthians 11, it speaks of false prophets who measured their spirituality by comparing themselves with others. I mean, I don't know about you, but it's, it's not too hard to find somebody worse off than yourself, is it? We all can. Even if you're in the lower end of society, you can probably find somebody who's worse off than you in their morality or whatever, their lifestyle. And so that's really a test that you can't, you can't lose. If the goal is to see, okay, well, who are we better than? That's not too hard to look around and find somebody that we're better than just because of the society we live in. One Pharisee prayed in Luke 18:11, "God, I thank thee that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector." See, his standard was always someone lower than himself. That's not what we're called to do. For those who set their standards lower than themselves, the ultimate human standard ends up being the most rotten person alive because it just keeps on going spiraling down and down and down until you're the, the lowest of society, the lowest of humanity. That's man's criteria when it comes to pure of heart. That's what we like to do. We like to look at others and say, ah, I'm, worse. I'm not worse off than that guy. But God's criteria isn't that way. It's different. 
See, his standard for acceptable character is not whether a person is better than you or not. That has nothing to do with it. God isn't looking down going, oh, Steve, you're, at least you're not you know, this or you're not that. You're not a, a murderer or, or a, a cheater or a, a thief or a liar or whatever. He's saying, hey, Converse, you know what? You're not 100% holy. That's my standard. Either you're 100% holy or, sorry, you're out. That's God's standard. 100%. Not 50, not 65, not 75, not 85, not even 99%. It has to be 100% holy. That's God's standard. Because that's what God is. He's 100% holy. 1 Peter 1.16 says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. That's what He tells us. Jesus said the same thing, basically, on the Sermon on the Mount a little later on in chapter 5, verse 48. He says, Be perfect even as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. You don't think that's a high standard? Can you imagine if you went in for a job, first day on the job, and they sat you down and they said, Okay, here's what you're going to be doing. You make one mistake. I don't care if it's today or ten years from now. You're fired. I mean, can you imagine the pressure that you would be under? To maintain that job? God says either it's all or nothing. See, mankind sets his standard of goodness as the worst human being alive. God's standard is what? It's himself. It's himself. And he's absolutely holy, totally righteous, totally just over all the universe. And what Jesus is saying here is unless you're like me, unless you're like God, you're not going to see my kingdom. That kind of gives people a little pause because it's like, wait a minute. Are you saying we have to be 100% pure in heart to enter the kingdom of God? That's exactly what I'm saying. That's what Christ was saying. That's why when he said those words, the people probably said, what? Are you crazy? Every week I'm saying this, these words must have surprised his audience. They didn't expect this. They were looking for somebody to come and kind of do a little political shell game and get them out from under the Roman rule and kind of everything would be happy. Christ comes along and just kind of mixes up everything. I mean, he's dealing with people here. The Pharisees would get upset if you washed your hands the wrong way. I mean, that's how nitpicky they were about little things like that. I remember when I was a youth pastor, we used to have car washes, fundraising things. I used to hate these things. I didn't hate them because they were hard work or whatever, but, I mean, you take a bunch of junior high and high schoolers, you take them to a you know, public parking lot, you give them buckets full of foamy, bubbly water, and then you have people come in and they put money in a bucket or if you're charging, whatever. And then, you know, they expect you to do the best job. You can't. Well, I mean, it's crazy, you know. And I remember telling kids, look, here's how you're going to wash these cars. Have a little pep talk, you know. Spray the car down first. You don't just start, you know, grinding the dirt into people's paint. They won't like that. And I went through this whole thing. And I remember at first, you know, they may listen a little bit, but by two o'clock in the afternoon, I mean, they're having water fights and, you know, there's people, hey, you know, you gonna wash my car or what? You know, it's just crazy. And it was just a source of frustration for me every time we'd have one because it wasn't done the way I wanted it to be done. 
I mean, you're drying a car and there's still mud on it. I mean, you know what that makes you feel like? It's just horrible. And see, I would get upset over these little piddly things. And you know, the people giving the money probably didn't care one way or the other. That's why I kind of liked it here when I first came here. They used to do these car washes. I didn't really understand why they did them, but they just had car washes. They'd have them down here in the parking lot. And we didn't charge anybody anything. And people, you know, so you didn't charge them. They had no donation. They'd say, well, can we give you a donation? Oh, no, no, no. We're just, uh, we're just washing your car. You know, why are you doing this? Well, we're just doing it. I don't know. You know, just be nice to the community, kind of outreach kind of a thing. And people come in and, you know, I thought, at the end, I thought, well, that's not bad because, you know, they can't really complain. I mean, they're not giving you nothing. You're just doing it out of the grace of your, you know, the goodness of your heart. So, you know what, if the, if the, if the car is a little dirty, leaving the, the track, well, too bad. You know, you didn't give us anything anyway. We didn't demand anything. But see, the Pharisees would get upset over these little ridiculous things, and yet, you know what? They were they were missing the big picture. They would get upset, or you know, they had all these little tithing rules and everything, and yet they paid no attention to love, no attention to truth, no attention to mercy, no attention to justice in this society. Matter of fact, in Matthew, uh, I think it's 23, 27, Jesus even says, you know what? He calls them white sepulchers, white tombs. He said, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but, in, but within are full of dead men's bones and all forms of uncleanness. He confronted them on their hypocrisy. They were showing up with all their religious garb and they were saying, oh, look at us. You know, we got this, we got that. And he said, you know what? You're nothing but an, a tomb filled with, with dead man's bones. You look real nice on the outside, whitewashed, but on the inside, you're wicked just like everybody else is wicked. But they had all this external stuff that they were doing. And the, the Lord kind of pu pulled back their cloak and, and, and was, people were able to see Him for who they really were. That's the historical context of what we're talking about this morning. That was going through the people's mind when Jesus was teaching this. So when He said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, they, they kind of took a step back and said, Whoa! We know that can ever happen. There's also a literary context here. There's also a context which each part of this kind of forms a pattern when you read through the Beatitudes. You can't just pick one out and say, I'm going to do this today. They're all together. You don't pick and choose. But it's interesting that they're in a sequential pattern. If you notice, when you become poor in spirit, the rest of the Beatitudes will show themselves out as the Holy Spirit works in your life. You understand yourself spiritually as a kind of a cowering beggar before a holy God without any power to earn anything spiritually. And you'll reach out to God with a tremendous sense of inadequacy. And then you'll mourn over your sin, which is the second one there. And, and uh, you know, then as a result of that, you become weak in the absolute holiness of God. And as a result of that, in your humility, you, you have this hunger and thirst for righteousness that you understand you can't attain by yourself. And as a result, you cry out to God to be filled and He'll hear you and He'll be merciful to you and He'll make you a merciful person. As a result of that, you become pure in heart. And then as a result of that, you become a peacemaker. And as a result of all those things, then you're persecuted. <laughs> And you're slandered by the world. But in the end, in verse 12, it says there's a promise of joy that God will reward you with. So Matthew 5.8 appears right where God wants it to appear, in the natural flow. Purity of heart comes after you've hungered and thirsted for righteousness. And after God has given you His mercy, that's the only place it can come. 
It's in His mercy that He cleanses our evil heart. See, purity in heart, pure in heart, is not something that we can earn. I can't tell you today, you know what, you need to go home and you need to read your Bible until you become pure in heart. It doesn't work that way. You can't earn it. It comes from God's mercy. It comes from God's grace. And the promise is it allows you to see God. There's also kind of a, a flowing pattern here. The first three, three Beatitudes lead up to the, the, uh, the, the, the middle one there. And then that one kind of flows over into the last three. A person who is kind of a, a begging spirit and mourns over his sin, that makes him meek before God. And that leads him to cry out for God's righteousness. God responds by showing him mercy, purifying his heart, and giving him the ability to make peace. The first three lead up to hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And the next three flow out of that desire for righteousness. One commentator even goes as far as to say that there's a matching pattern here. The first and the fifth, the second and the sixth, and the third and the seventh. So the poor in spirit know every know that everything that they have is a gift of mercy. Those who mourn over their sins will have pure hearts. Those who are meek will be peacemakers. But see, in the day and age that Jesus was speaking this, they had all sorts of mixed up ideas about religion. Some of the people in the crowd that Jesus taught were these legalistic Pharisees. And they had a certain way of doing everything. And you know what? There's one of those in every crowd. Even in the church, that's just the way it is. And they think that you'll go to heaven because of their own achievements of what they tell you to do. And they're looking at themselves saying, I've fulfilled this, I'm okay. The Lord certainly wouldn't send me to hell. I don't do this, I don't do that. I help provide for my children's needs. I never killed anyone. I never ran out of my wife. I've done the best I can in life. What's that? That's a religion of human achievement. Two kinds of religions in the world. Human achievement and divine accomplishment. Doesn't matter what they're called. They fall into those two categories. Human achievement says, basically it teaches that you can earn your way to heaven. It's by what you do. Divine accomplishment says, you know what? God brings salvation through faith in Christ alone and people can't make it on their own to heaven. They need Christ. They need God. We need to reject that human achievement. We, we need to reject the idea that somehow we can earn the right to go to heaven. And Jesus exposed this hypocrisy in the Pharisees of the day. And they knew it. It's not that they didn't know this. They, they knew the Old Testament. Psalm 51.6 says, God desires truth in the inward parts. Psalm 24.1-5, it says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and they who dwell therein. For He hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in the holy place? He who has clean hands and a what? And a pure heart. Over and over again in the Old Testament, it talks about purity of heart as being necessary to see the kingdom of God. Without a pure heart, you will never see God or His kingdom. It just won't happen. The impure of heart will die frustrated in their sins and they'll ultimately be in hell one day. 
That's what will happen. See, the wonder of salvation in Christ is that He came to earth to purify our hearts. That's why Jesus came. He took our sin upon Himself on the cross and He paid the penalty for us. And then He took His own righteousness and He put it on us. So when God looks at us, He sees the righteousness of Christ. What an incredible exchange. He makes us pure in God's eyes. And, and because Christ bore our sins in His own body on the tree, righteousness is given to us. His righteousness. Someone who never knew any sin whatsoever took upon Him the sin of the world so that He had to be treated as if He had committed every sin by every person who would ever put their faith or trust in Him. What does it mean to be pure in heart? That, re, that word, go from the back here, the word translated heart is cardia in the Greek. You know, we get the word cardiac from. Uh, the Bible always refers to the heart of man as the internal part of man. It's kind of the, the seat of a man's personality. It, it, it predominantly, this word predominantly, you would think that it has to deal with the emotions, but it doesn't. It has to deal with the mind. In the Jewish culture, that's what they always related to. When you said, talked about the heart, they knew you were talking about the thinking process, not some ooey-gooey emotion. See, it's our society that kind of changed that around. You know, I left my heart. You know, what do we think? Oh, the emotions of San Francisco. Or achy, breaky heart. You know, all those songs. What's the deal with? It deals with emotion. So it's, it's, it's important that we understand that there's a big difference here. We're not talking about emotion. We're talking about a thinking process. When the Bible talks about emotion, it's talking about the gut. It's talking about the bowels. You ever heard quiver in my liver? Oh, i got a quiver in my liver. Some people say that. That's how the, the Jewish mindset thinks. And they, they, they thought that way because when they would be upset emotionally, what happens to us? What happens when we get upset emotionally? Our stomachs bother us, right? You get all sorts of things going wrong and everything. Your body's saying, hey, chill out, chill out. You know, you got all this gastric juices going and, you know, and, and it's just not good. That's why he's not talking about emotion here. He's talking about the thinking process. Case in point, Proverbs 23, 7. We know this verse. As a man, what? Thinketh in his heart. So he is. See, we can think of the word heart as referring to the will and emotions because they're influenced by the intellect. If our minds are really committed to something... It will affect our will. Last night, when I went to bed, I was committed to coming here this morning and, and, and leading worship and, and preaching. I was committed to that. So when the alarm went off this morning at 4.30, 5 o'clock, whatever it went off, I didn't hit the snooze and say, ah, you know what, I'm just going to sleep in until 10.30. Didn't do it. Why? Because my mind affected what I was going to do. I got up kind of excited. Okay, get to teach God's Word today. This would be great. Fellowship of the body. It affected my will, which in turn affects my emotions. See, so many times we have everything backwards. <laughs> we get everything backwards, and so we're making decisions based on our emotions. And that's just plain wrong. 
Because your emotions will lie to you every time. Now, how many times I've talked to young people and you know, in the office and not so much in this church, but when I was a youth pastor and, you know, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to date Johnny and, well, you know, Susie, I don't, I don't think, you know, where's Johnny at spiritually? Well, I don't know, you know, he, he, he comes to a youth group, but I, I don't think he's a Christian, but, you know, he says he loves me. And poor, you know, Susie's just dead set on dating Johnny, even though it's outside of God's standard, outside of God's uh, will for her life. She doesn't see that. But he's so nice to me. And you can say, it's just emotion, emotion. And you can tell somebody like that till they're blue in the face. This is not a good idea. This is going to get you in trouble. You're, out, you're stepping outside of God's bounds of protection. And it's going to hurt you. But their emotions are involved. You know, we held hands at the movie theater. And, you know, all this stuff, blah, 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 blah. They're not thinking with their head. They're thinking with, with, with their emotions. You can't do that. And we as adults do the same thing. You know, we go into work one day and the boss says, you know, I need to see you in my office tomorrow. Okay. What do we do? We go home. We're thinking, what's he want? What's the boss want? I wonder if I'm getting laid off. I wonder if I'm getting fired. So by the time we walk in the door, you know, the wife goes, how was your day? I'm fine. I don't need to talk to anybody right now. You know, you're working yourself up into this frenzy and pretty soon, you know, you're thinking, oh, we've got to sell the house, move. We can't afford to live here if I don't have a job. And you go in the next day, the boss sits you down and says, hey, I just appreciate, you know, your work on that last report. That was, that was great. Thanks. You can get out of my office now. Bye. And you're going... Oh, or the teenager's a little late getting home at night and you're pacing the floor in the living room and you're, ah, oh, auto accident, what happened? Oh, we don't, and you got yourself worked up. That's your emotion. It's not your intellect. Don't allow the emotions to tell us what decisions to make. See, it's, the will's like a flywheel. The mind gets moving, and once it's moving, it should move the emotions. You, our problem is we get our emotions moving, and then it, it mixes everything up. See, when the Lord spoke of being pure in heart, He was talking about a pure mind that controls a person's emotion. Sometimes as a chaplain, you go out and people are grieving and they're in this state of emotional, just just almost disrepair. I mean, they're just shutting down and they're saying all this stuff. And sometimes you just got to forcefully sit them down and say, listen to me, here's what's going to happen. I mean, I understand you're grieving, but you know what? You have little kids here and your little kids shouldn't be seeing you this way. And then finally, they get a hold of themselves. Oh, you're right. But they need to kind of be shocked out of that. It's the same way with us sometimes. The instruction in God's words is always to keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it come the issues of life. Our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions flow out of the heart. Ephesians 6, 6, 6 says, Do the will of God from the heart. And we have to realize that Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And yet Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart. Matthew fifteen nineteen to 20 says, Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murderers, adulterers, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemy. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands defileth not 
a man. Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, you know what, you make such a big deal out of all this ceremonial washing stuff, but God is concerned about your heart. And in verse 18, he says, those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from where? From the heart. And they defile the man. James 4.8, draw near to God, He will draw near to you. You better cleanse your hearts, you sinners, purify your hearts. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. God wants changed hearts. He's not interested in coming in and doing a remodel. Okay? That's how we think of our Christianity sometimes. If we just get cleaned up enough, it's the same old house, but it's got new paint on it. You know, that's not what God's interested in. He's interested in giving you a whole new house. A total transformation. A total extreme makeover. He's coming in, he's tearing it down. It's gone. You ever see that show where they come in, they just wipe out the whole house. And they start brand new. That's what God does to us when we come to Him. With a humble heart. Think of the illustration of Saul. You know, when, when they wanted a king, God said, Hey, I'll give you a king. Saul was tall, dark, handsome. But there wasn't much else there. <laughs> but 1 Samuel 10.9 says God gave him another heart. He changed him on the inside. And even with that, eventually Saul started disobeying God. He looked at things and, and he said, hey, you know what? I can do this priestly thing. No problem. <laughs> I know I'm not supposed to, but that's all right. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm, I'm, I'm king. And eventually the prophet Samuel told Saul, you know what? Your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord wants somebody with a, a man after his own heart. First Samuel 16, 7, man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. See, God selected David because his heart was right. Not that he was perfect, but his heart was right. That's what heart means. How about pure? It's not popular to talk about purity today, but you know what? Just a couple clarifications about this word. That the Greek word translated pure is a noun form. It means to cleanse. Cathartic, we get that word from that. Um, it has the idea of being cleansed, being free from the filth of sin. It refers to also an integrity. Um, pure in heart would refer to spiritual integrity, singleness of heart. In other words, singleness of mind. You're not going to have a, a mixed up devotion and motives as a Christian if you're pure in heart. God wants people who are single-minded. He wants people who have pure motives. You know, it's not, you know, the, the, the Christian who's fulfilling the Beatitudes doesn't wake up on Sunday and go, ah, you know, I just don't feel like going to church today, so I think I won't. Doesn't happen. Why? Because their, 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 their heart is, is single, devoted to God. And they know in the Word that God has instructed them to do certain things. And they're not just doing it because God tells them to. They're doing it because there's a desire there to fulfill God's righteousness in their life. Jeremiah 32, 39, God said of Israel, I will give them one heart one way that they may fear me forever. God always speaks of being single-minded, single-devoted to Him. Even in Matthew 6, when Christ was talking about our treasure, He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Alright? You can't have it both ways. You can't sit on the fence. Your heart's corrupt, your life's going to be corrupt. That's just the way it is. 
No one can serve two masters. Jesus said that very clearly. This morning, as we come to our communion time, that word purity speaks more of just a person's motives. Because, you know what, you can have a sincere motive. You think about the Baal worshipers in Elijah's day. They were sincere. I mean, they were cutting themselves with knives. They were doing all sorts of horrible things. They were sincere about their faith. It's just that their faith was misdirected. But truly pure motives will always produce holy deeds that are in accord with God's Word. I like what Thomas Watson said. He said this, Morality may damn as well as any vice. A vessel may be sunk with gold as well as with dung. That's good. A person may think that his motives are pure and say that he's religious, but you know what? If his deeds aren't in accord with God's Word, his heart isn't focused on God. It's that simple. I wrote there in your your notes five areas of purity. Primitive purity, that's basically exists only with God. Created purity, that's things that God created pure, man, angels. Ultimate purity, when we who are in Christ will be completely pure one day. We won't experience sin anymore. There's positional purity that we are now, right now as Christians, we're positionally pure before God. When God looks down at us, He doesn't see our sinfulness. He looks at us and sees the righteousness of Christ because we're positionally pure. But it's the last one that always gets us. It's the practical purity, isn't it? Only God knows primitive purity. Only He can bestow created purity. And in the future, He'll bestow on every saint ultimate purity. And right now, every believer has positional purity. But this practical purity, that's the one that gives us trouble. (laughs) That's the one that's hard to live out. That's why in 2 Corinthians 7.1, Paul wrote, Dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. He meant we're to be living pure lives. It's not that we're perfect. One day we will be, when we're in Christ. How do you obtain this? First of all, you have to admit that you can't purify your own heart your own way. You have to do it God's way. Proverbs 29 says, Who can say, I have made my heart clean? I am pure from sin. Jeremiah 13.23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard change his spots? You can't purify yourself. That's a work of God. You have to put your faith, secondly, in God. Good works won't make you, your, your wicked heart pure, but faith can. 1 John 1.7 says, If we walk in the light, He is in the light, and we have fellowship one with another, in the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, what? Cleanses us from all sin. That's what this table is about this morning. It's talking about being cleansed from sin, about the, 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 pay, the payment that Christ paid on our account. And the last thing is read God's Word and pray. Read God's Word and pray. And it's interesting when it says, blessed are the pure in heart. That last little phrase, that's the result of it. For they shall see God. You can put in there, for they shall continually see God for themselves. 
That's what it means. For they shall continually see God for themselves when you're blessed by purity in heart. Let's close with a word of prayer before our communion time. And Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. Lord, we pray that as we come before this table, this communion table this morning, that You would do that work in, your heart, in our hearts to allow them to be pure before You. Lord, Your Word clearly marks out how communion should be done in the local church. It's not to be done hastily. It's not to be done irreverently. But Lord, we come this morning with a deep need. Lord, we all have need of Your forgiveness. We all have need of Your purity, Your righteousness, because we have none in and of ourselves. And Lord, we thank You that it was Your Son, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross and died on the cross in our place. That He put on us His righteousness, which allows You to forgive us because the payment was paid in full. There's nothing we need to add to our salvation. Lord, I thank You for that this morning. That we're complete in Christ. That we're secure in Christ. And Lord, I pray that as we just have our communion time this morning, that You would bless each one. Lord, if there's someone here who's yet to put their faith or trust in You as their Lord and Savior, I pray that they would cry out to You, Be merciful to me, a sinner, O God. Show me Your grace. Help me to confess my sin to You. Grant me the repentance You promise. Transform my wicked heart, my stony heart, and give me a heart of flesh, a heart that's pleasing to You, a heart that's cleansed and pure by the blood of Christ. That's a prayer away. It's nothing you have to do. You don't have to jump through any hoops. You don't have to join any church. That's something God does for you if you ask Him. If you're sincere this morning, He will grant you that request. And believers, I just pray that we would just be reminded of all the graciousness of God to us, our families, our loved ones, our church. Lord, that we would not forget His mercies are new every morning. We thank You and we praise You. In Jesus' name, Amen.